Hello and welcome to the Chris Ham Podcast, episode number 53. The unofficial end of summer fast approaching with Labor Day just about a week away, September 7th, as late as it can possibly be because it's the first Monday of September. So we do, we do get an extra week, so to speak, of, of summer, unofficial summer, even though real summer doesn't end until uh, the end of September. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could certainly, you know, the summer is winding down. August is winding down. We're segueing into September. You could definitely feel the days getting shorter. Uh, a couple months ago, the sky wasn't completely dark until nine. Now it's dark an hour earlier, an hour plus earlier. Sunset around 730 or something like that. Um, so we could definitely feel it. <laughs> a crazy 2020, but uh, it's winding down. The year's winding down too. And um, as far as the weekend, coming off a fantastic weekend here, in the Northeast, in this kind of COVID gray world in which we're operating, socializing, but with parameters. And look, at this point, my family and I are not locking down at home in the basement until a vaccine comes. We're not only going out for groceries and wearing masks in the car uh, and just getting a, a sporadic delivery here and there. I mean, you know, cases are low around here across the political spectrum. People, people seem to be wearing masks. And listen, the people we hang out with, uh, we, we trust them. They're not going to concerts. They're not going to bars. They're not walking around maskless. They're also, you know, parents with young kids um, and elderly parents. And I have elderly parents themselves or parents that are, <laughs> I don't want to say elderly. My, my mom my mom would kill me for saying that. But, uh, you know, late 60s or, or early 70s. So, um, you know, we generally take around the same level of precaution the people that we're hanging out with the the bubbles expanded at this point and um you know they're living a virtual virtually similar life to, to me and my family so we, we we choose to have a bubble which includes um the grandparents so both my parents jen's parents some close extended family here and there maybe half a dozen local friends all right and, and we're not seeing these people every day it's sporadic we're monitoring our our our, uh, our temperature, our physical condition. Um, so that's it. So anyway, that's that's just my disclaimer before you judge me on my plans for the weekend. So Friday night, we did a parents' night out organized by friends of ours. And this is one of the best nights we had out in a while. Um, it was the first time we went out socially with another uh, group of people at night for a dinner and, and whatnot in almost a year. I mean, literally like about, about 10 months Ten and a half months, and uh, it was four couples on Friday. A beautiful weather night here. Um, you know, high sixties, low humidity, maybe 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 a uh, low seventies. We sat outside at a long table. You know, it was high school dance style. The dads were on one side, the moms were on another side, but a small enough crew where, at times, the conversations merged. And for probably you know seventy five percent of the night, the fellas talked with each other, and the ladies talked with each other. But it was awesome. The drinks were plentiful. I had a Hendrix Negroni to start it off. We had a fantastic Italian meal experience um, in the neighboring town. Cocktails, wine, antipasta, entrees, dessert, even dessert wine, which is a personal favorite of Jen, my wife's. So the owner, and let me, I got I to gotta talk about this guy. He was a, a, an authentic Italian dude named Sergio. Uh, came out, he was effectively the maitre d'. I mean, he described the wines on the wine list with such nuance and detail, kind of, you know, factoring in all the dishes that we were having. Um, and it was it was such detail to the point where I said to Jen at the car today, I want to take a wine class. Zoom for now, of course, but it, it inspired me. It was just like 
who was just awesome. I mean, he rattled off the seasonal specials, uh, flowed seamlessly between Italian and English as he greeted regular patrons coming and going, uh, had his Italian flag emblem on his shirt, on his mask. I mean, he was just he was just a great guy. And the most humorous part of the dinner, um, I think every parent had a drink within freaking three minutes of sitting down at the table. <laughs> you know, one of the other dads had a drink even before he parked his friggin' car. Uh, his wife had ordered him a drink. So uh, the drinks were flowing. You know, four hours just flew by in the blink of an eye. And all of our babysitters made out like friggin' highway bandits. So that was Friday night. Then we had a chill family day on Saturday. It was raining, but we got some of our local favorite foods. Um, then earlier today, the weather was just absolutely pristine outside. A little bit of wind, but high 70s, bright sunshine, low humidity. We went up to Jen's cousin's house in Connecticut. Our kids spent time with, with their second cousins over a nice brunch spread. Um, then we drove home 45 minutes with about five minutes of traffic uh, mid-afternoon. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I-95 going south from Connecticut to New York could be a disaster, but we, we either beat the traffic or just the way that, that life is ri- life's rhythm is these days with COVID, there just wasn't as much on the road. Uh, so we, we came back, we met our good friends uh, at, a, at a local outdoor restaurant near us with some great pizza, some more cocktails, capped it off with a playground uh, for our kids, a playground date, a play date with our kids and where the adults wear masks and the kids didn't. Just a bizarre world. But uh, Eloise and our friend's daughter were zipping around this restaurant like they had, had two five-hour energy drinks. Good times overall, but beautiful time of the year overall outside. Um, and that, that's, that's uh, outside of the swarming yellow jackets that literally seem to swarm to every single outdoor food or drink item, but nonetheless. And um, just some exciting news I want to share briefly with our family. Uh, not another kid. Uh, but we are just a few days, um, a few weeks away, I should say, from closing on on our, our very first home. Um, lots of work ahead. Um, our bank account stretched thin, but exciting and proud at the same time. Um, I'll spend the next couple of episodes, I'm sure, talking about the exhausting homeownership process and some of the intricacies of the house. But uh, really excited about that. And um, some housekeeping, which we will also set the stage for this show. As you know, a signature of every week has been the random open and then the takes of all temperatures to close it out, the totes. Now, outside of that, um, I want to leave flexibility. Um, I, I generally have, I would say, a couple longer segments that are random based on current events and with, without a ton of, of, of structure. But I want to leave some flexibility for that. But on most shows, I'm going to throw in a couple, a few extra staples, if you will. So I'm going to throw in a couple more recurring segments to make sure I'm hitting on the diverse array of themes episode to episode. And one thing I did as an NFL junkie is my pick segment in NFL storylines during the NFL season. Uh, so going forward, I'm going to start with one featured topic um, and then segue to politics, especially as we approach the election a couple months out. Um, parenting stripes section, which will sometimes include Disney deep dives on a specific movie. Then I'm going to do my totes. Then to close, I'm going to do the sports digest rather than a sandwich in the middle, because at the end, I want to make sure the non-sports fan listeners that I have can hear all the content they want without having to skip around. So just a few adjustments. When I get to each segment, given that this is my first go at this format, I'll give an overview on what to expect for, for a few episodes. So, um, First on the docket today, unrest again, this time in Wisconsin. 
So buckle up, episode 53, here we go. All right, so let's start with Jacob Blake. Now it's hard for me, even as a person of color, to not get numb to this sometimes. When I initially hear what happens before eventually getting outraged once this all sets in for me. Now the details about what happened are still hazy, but Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back by a police officer. Now allegedly, he was trying to break up a fight, but whether you buy that or not, the fact of the matter was he was heading back to his car where his three children were sitting in the back seat. And before you go and tell me he should have just complied and listened and not gone back to his car, picture a confrontation and your own kids witnessing it and how viscerally any parent, any one of us, are likely to make sure that they are okay and want to go talk to them and reassure them in that situation. You know, get out of your Jacob Blake is a criminal, the way the media portrays black people over and over again. And think of this man as a father, right? As a man and a father. You know, my buddy pointed out to me that media outlets across the spectrum, whenever there's a confrontation between a white person and a black person, cop or otherwise, generally they take, when they're showing the picture on the screen or there's an article, they take the most flattering yearbook type picture for the white person, and then the stone-faced picture of the black person, even if they were a model citizen. Now, Jacob Blake somehow miraculously, although paralyzed from the waist down, survived. Seven shots. I guess four of them landed. Now, the details of this incident are still being hashed out. And for the purposes of this segment, it's almost not important. You know, at the end of the day, a black man who was a father and has three kids in the car had excessive force used against him because the way people of color continue to be betrayed in this country is as criminals and thugs. You know, I'm not here to litigate Jacob Blake's actions, but I, I do want to highlight a double standard. And it's just so apropos. After a protest of this excessive force, by this cop, we have a vigilante, cop wannabe, Blue Lives Matter, jock-sniffing supporter, Kyle Rittenhouse. He guns down and murders people. Gets pointed out to police. He murdered two people. Shot three. Gets pointed out to police by people on the scene. Rifle across his chest fucking 17 year old kid and they shrug it off they didn't think he was a cop they knew he's not a cop why do they shrug it off because Kyle Rittenhouse isn't an enemy of the police by default in the eyes of the institution he is a white male with a gun an ally a friend an appendage of the greater mission of the institution And don't tell me that the institution isn't corrupt. There was just an article that came out recently that said, that talked about the infiltration of police forces all over this country by white supremacists. It's an independent article. I'll post it on my Twitter. Right? This whole dynamic reminds me of a scene in the mid-1990s John Singleton film, Higher Learning. Now, for those not familiar with it, I'm going to date myself by talking about it. It came out in either 95 or 96. 
So we're talking about 25-ish years ago, all right? If you're under 35, you have no friggin' idea what the movie is, probably. Now, it depicts a cross-section of individuals at some uh, made-up university. It's a diverse but a segregated campus, and it highlights sexual and racial issues in the mid-90s. It might as well be today. Now, there's a group of skinheads, neo-Nazis in the movie. One of which is Michael Rappaport, the actor. Who, if you follow now, this is increasingly ironic as he is a very vocal, progressive voice. But anyway, he plays. He does a great job, I think, acting this movie, playing the skinhead. And at the end of the movie, he is the assailant um, of a mass shooting that kills Omar Epps' girlfriend, played by Tyra Banks. And knowing Omar Epps, who knew him personally through run-ins they had, as he got, um, as he, you know, as, as um, the character of Michael Rappaport um, eventually became, you know, progressed to becoming a skinhead and got radicalized, if you will, Omar Epps runs up the clock tower to hurt or kill Remy, the character, and he gets intercepted by campus police, which are depicted as racist rednecks, with a white supremacist agenda, which at the time, my naive self in the mid-90s as a teenager, it seemed far-fetched to me. Shows you how naive I was. But here's the clip, which seems spot-on today, of the interaction between police and Rappaport, Remy, his character name, before he, he kills himself, before his suicide. Isn't that something else? That really, I think, embodies how, not just how police, but a lot of how white people that are far right down the political spectrum feel about these extremists in, the, in their own camp, if they will. When is enough enough? And to be fair, there's some people on the left you know, the, the, the way the rioters are portrayed or, or, or some people on the left are like, you know what, like, I don't care if these places burn down because the point needs to be made. All right, I'm not equalizing it. I'm just saying that 
there's a mentality when you feel attached to a certain group's ideology that you condone these extreme acts. But when is enough enough? And collectively, you know, we want to victim blame and minimize and play the whataboutism game. And let's talk about Antifa for a minute. There was an article recently released by Business Insider that quantified extremism and said since 1995, right-wing groups have killed 329 people. And guess how many Antifa have killed? Oh, zero. So next time somebody you know or come across tries to equalize the two of those things, tell them to fuck off. You know, but for those part of the Republican messaging or understanding of this, can you clarify something for me if I'm, if I'm mistaken? Is the Republican message, if you're white, feel free to use a gun, an automatic gun, whatever you deem necessary to defend yourself from any threat, real or perceived. And if you're black, not even a peaceful protest is acceptable or reasonable. That's the standard. Just shut up and just take the way it is, you know, or leave the country. You're ungrateful. Tell me if I'm, if I'm misinterpreting something. And I don't think we need a data scientist to, to know that our joke of a president, he does anything but set the appropriate tone of accountability and togetherness. This is why I get so filled with rage, by the way, when I see one of those stupid fucking flags or bumper magnets of the American flag with the blue stripe through it. It's just too, it's just too, it's just too coded. And, and by the way, defund the police doesn't mean disband, all right? Doesn't mean I don't want cops. I want cops that do their fucking jobs and aren't filled of forces with the dumbest 10% of a given high school class in America whose parents use the N-word and they got dominated in gym class by athletes of color and developed all this resentment. I want my tax dollars to go towards cops that serve and protect all people, not just white people. You know, the whole defund the police. The marketing, I know it sounds terrible, but if you were brought to lead a company, brought in as an executive to lead a company, and you had a bunch of employees that literally took shits on the office floor, they're all part of the same sales team. If you wanted to clean house, does that mean that you don't want sales at the company? Well, you just want a new sales team. You want to rebuild the culture. I just don't know what to even say anymore. Another thing about Rittenhouse, by the way, there's a video of him. Sean King posted this on Twitter, on Instagram. There's a video of him with, at, at, during an altercation recently. And it's clear as day that it's him. He sucker punches a young woman, a girl during a fight. Now, that should tell you all you need to know about him. So, some political commentary next. Now, as we wrap up this week, the Republican and Democrats national conventions um, were done over the last few weeks. And it still remains to be seen what the effect is going to be politically from both of them. And we are as divided as ever. If you just watch snippets of both. But I'm not about to equalize them, all right? Call me a lefty loon, partisan, whatever the fuck you want, all right? We Democrats actually focused on a platform. We denounced the current shipliner wreck of a president. And the Republicans had no platform. 
It was rather pie-in-the-sky values, America's great, cancel culture, fear-mongering. You know, they tried out a bunch of Uncle Toms trying to gaslight America that the party, the way it's aligned today, isn't racist somehow. You know, Tim Scott of South Carolina to Vernon Jones of Georgia to the Attorney General of Tennessee, Daniel Cameron, Uncle Tom after Uncle Tom after Uncle Tom. Now, I am of the belief, personally, Chris Ham is under the belief that these people weren't brought out to convince more than the 9% of the African-American electorate to vote for Trump, because that's where it stands now. That's the current voter split, 9%. Less than 1 in 10 of African-Americans vote for Trump. But rather, they were trotted out, these, these Uncle Toms were trotted out to convince white people that they surely couldn't be supporting a racist platform that brings Negroes out during the RNC. Ridiculous. Now, I love how Tim Scott somehow paints this picture that Democrats are saying or insinuating that our country is worse than the 1960s or the 1860s. No, Tim, we aren't saying that. But we're also not okay that we are 60 and 160 years respectively removed from those periods and racism is still alive and well. There's a white supremacist in the White House. There's white supremacists marching on a, on a college campus a couple of years ago saying Jews will not replace us. Give me a break. People are, you know, black people aren't being murdered and lynched by the KKK, but rather people of color are being killed by police and fucking vigilantes Consistently. Now, other than that, I noticed the extreme nepotism, as I said, the gaslighting and the incoherent babble and screaming by the Trump sons and Kimberly Gulfoil with his with her ridiculous. You know, anecdotally, the Trumpers I know, some very, very people that are very, very close and like relatives, so to speak are stuck in a world of tribalism and an echo chamber. You know, I was actually thinking earlier, well, <laughs> that if AOC got elected president somehow, all right, some people would, would, would shit themselves. But if she went so off the deep end that every time that a company had profits above a certain threshold, she publicly trashed them and called for boycotts, I'd be out on her. Lefty loon, lefty far left off the grid Chris Ham. It would be too far for me, which is why I don't respect those who support Trump and I'm starting to lose patience for the Trump sympathizers and the Republican platform sympathizers. Look, to put it succinctly in an attempt to speak for the left, the left cares about acknowledging that not everyone has the same opportunity for success or even safety, that tax dollars should go towards those that can't afford social rights such as health care, not to overspending on guns and the military when the biggest threats are inside of our walls. So that's, that's liberalism 2020, in my opinion, for most of us in a nutshell. Now, as far as the election goes, I'm going to try and step away from my emotional bias and wadding Biden and Harris or the fear that we expected to win in 2016 for the Dems and ended up with Trump and the worst version of him imaginable. All right, I'm going to try to stay away from, from 
from both of those extremes. You know, I brought this up months ago, though, but I want to stick to a couple data points, a couple facts. A couple things, polling and approval rating data, right? When it comes to polling, Joe Biden leads national polling by about seven to eight points, which is double where Hillary was at this point. She had, you know, less than a five-point advantage. Now, further, at one point in the summer, Trump was ahead of Hillary in 2016, and at no point has he been ahead of Biden. Now, this is according to an interactive chart on real clear politics, which takes polling averages. Now, one piece of data we have have to add more context now that you have an incumbent, and we didn't have in 2016 with brand new candidates, was approval rating. Now, Trump's approval rating, according to 538 averages, is about 42% with disapproval around 54%. Now, the only people going back to Truman in the 1940s that Trump beat out were people that lost re-election, right? As far as disapproval, he is worse than every president since they have measured outside of Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter in 1980 lost in a landslide, had 49 electoral votes. All right, let's take a look a little bit more granular in the battleground states. Now, at the moment, battleground states polls look good for Biden. There's a long way to go. Things can change quickly. You know, it feels like 60 something days is not that long and it it isn't, but it is in an election. And the polls suggest that Biden leads in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, which are three industrial states in which um, Trump won by margins of less than 1% to clinch victory in 2016. Now, I'm looking at, 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 these, at these averages. I mean, Biden leads in these uh, dozen or so battleground states in Arizona, Florida, Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, New Hampshire, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Wisconsin. Trump leads in Georgia, Iowa, and Texas. I'm surprised even Georgia and Texas are considered battleground states. And in, in the 2016 election, all but four of those examples, Trump won. You know, Trump won Arizona by 3.6%. Biden leaves now by over 2%. You know, there's all these different examples. Trump led one Ohio by 8%. Biden leads by also 2.5%. So it's very interesting when you look at the battleground states. So when it comes to combining the the that you know, that data, that, that points to a Biden win. And let's assume for a second that the combination of Trump's attempt at manipulation and Russia, they, they don't end up swaying the outcome. You know, also, if you have the most basic statistical background, you are aware of the concept of expected value. Now, if you aren't, or as a refresher, you take a series of potential numerical outcomes multiplied by probability, and it spits out a probability-weighted number. So for those of us who are anti-Trump, let's put together an on-the-fly, high-level expected value calculation. Think of four general outcome buckets for this election. A Trump landslide, a Trump narrow victory, a Biden narrow victory, and a Biden landslide. Now let's coin this numeric outcome a disaster index. and respectively assign the numbers 4, 3, 2, and 1. 4 being the biggest disaster. And that's a, that's a Trump landslide. Now... If I am not using any advanced calculation, I think 
the three most likely outcomes are three, two, and one. So any rather than argue, I think many would agree that least likely of those outcomes is a Trump landslide. Now, if he is trying to manipulate the USPS and voter suppress, coupled with some of that data, I got to believe even his camp doesn't think a landslide is probable. Now, with that, that makes our disaster index pretty low. Again, I know we have a massive collective psychological overcorrection at our, in our hands here. But if the dumbest kid in, in my high school class cheated his ass off in high school, it don't mean he's going to Harvard. All right? Those are my thoughts. Now, ending with a terrible Trump transmission, just a brief one. Night four of the Republican National Convention, Trump stated that he has done more for the African-American community than Abraham Lincoln. This is patently false according to historians. A 2017 study assessed modern presidents and one metric, not, not only did not, he, was Trump not in the top few, but he was ranked in the bottom third. So don't buy his bullshit. He's a liar. At the end of the day, he's a liar. There's plenty of examples of it. So parenting stripes up next. Okay, it's been a few episodes, so it's time to dive into some parenting. So parenting stripes, I'm just going to give um, examples of some of the, the, the challenges and the rewarding parts of parenting our two kids as it stands when I, when I, when I do this segment. So four years and two months in, for, it has taught me more than any four-year stretch of schooling in my life as far as parenting goes, being a dad. And it is a mirror into ourselves, including our wounds, our family baggage, Good qualities, bad qualities, and everything in between. So quickly, just a snapshot of my two girls and what has been cool and then what challenges are. I'll start with baby Emmy. So Emmy is less than two weeks away from six months old. She was born on March 12th, which is really the delineation between some level of normalcy and the clusterfuck year that has been 2020 and all the, the COVID stuff. Now, the two coolest aspects of her have been the way that she soaks in love in our family and the world around her, all right? That's the first thing. So she has an incredibly smiley disposition. She's so easily pleased into happiness. You know, the culmination of this is she absolutely loves her big sister and puts so much attention on her every time she steps into the room. I mean, hearing Eloise's voice literally brings her to like this, this happy smile and Eloise can do the most basic thing to entertain her and it results in a belly laugh. That, that's the first really cool thing about Emmy. And the second thing is, She's no longer looking like an alien. And she actually, you know, her features are starting to, to show through. And I could tell because I look at pictures of Eloise at five or six months and can see much of her now in those pictures. Now I'm starting to now imagine Emmy at two, three, four. So that's, that, those have been the coolest parts of Emmy. Um, segwaying to Eloise, in my experience, the basic physical competence jump happens between one and two. The biggest physical developmental jump is, is what I'm talking about between one and two. Um, but as far as, so, so competence between one and two, biggest physical development as far as how they look, I think happens between two and three. And the biggest verbal jump happens between three and four. Now, Eloise turned four back in July and the amount of just esoteric questions she asks where I really have to ponder or say, hmm, I don't know the answer to that. It's just through the roof. For example, she's asked me this in the last like week or two. Why do bugs bite us? What does stupid mean? 
I mean, can you answer those easily? You know, I know mosquitoes take our blood and replace it with saliva, but why? Is it food for them? I still have to dig into this. Then with, with, with stupid, our best answer, Jedi's, was it means not smart, which is just an antonym. It doesn't seem sufficient. So well, one of the coolest things about her is just how much she's just learning every day about the different nuances of life and just asking questions. And further, the amount of, of love she wants to give and receive just melts my heart. She understands the concept of love, wants to express it to me, to Jen, to grandparents, cousins, friends. It's awesome. Now, as far as challenges, that was the, that was the good. As far as challenges with Emmy, she's an easy baby. She sleeps through the night. She doesn't cry a lot with a ton of intensity and is very physically competent. Now, the car is the biggest bugaboo for her. Most babies get calm and sleepy. Not Emmy. She doesn't cry her head off. She doesn't get sick in the car, but she's basically had this incessant noise. It's starting to wear down a little bit now, but it's, uh, it sounds like this. Uh, uh, pretty much for the duration of most car rides. Now for Eloise, the biggest challenge with her, she feels so deeply and she shares Jen, her mom's empathic feelings, which already manifest now at age four. And this creates a sense of anxiety and intensity to her emotions that just gets exacerbated around any kind of sleep. So therefore, toddlers and preschoolers naturally want to cut sleep time. She cuts it on the front end. In the morning when she gets up early, she's looking to see if the sun is up. She, she gets up literally like at the 6 o'clock hour, if not the 5 o'clock hour most of the time. Even if she's like tries to convince herself it's too early, she still can't, can't fall back asleep. And at night, she refuses to take a nap. And she's operating on empty. And she's at, at night, she's just stalling her bedtime. Extra bathroom trips, water, sing, lay with me. It's tough, all right? So this is her state, like really literally five out of seven days of the week. And it's, it goes back to 2010. So 2010, Jen and I took a trip to Europe. We weren't making a ton of money. You know, Jen was mid-20s. I was late-20s. We did 14 days or so on like $3,500. So that meant taking an Amtrak train to Philly then flying to Geneva via a five-hour layer in Lisbon, Portugal. Now, I'd like to go back now with a bit more of a robust figurative wallet. But back then, it, 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 you know, it was an interesting experience. We were there for a few hours. It struck us as a bit sketchy. Great weather, near the water, apparently great food and seafood, great architecture. But we stumbled our way to the Lisbon Square for breakfast. And we were solicited for drugs about 10 times in a couple hours. But as far as the, the analogy with sleep with Eloise, I mean, the extreme fatigue due to the short six-hour flight that we took, where we had trouble sleeping on planes as is, I certainly do. At the time, there was a crying baby behind us that shit its diaper a few different times. The parents were changing changing the baby on the, on the tray table. It left us feeling as really friggin' tired, as tired as I've ever felt in my adult life. This is Eloise every day. But rather than, than not sleep because there's no place, because we were, Jen and I at that time in, in, on our Europe trip, we're you know, on a layover, we're at an airport waiting for delayed flights. <laughs> it was such a relief to eventually get into bed. Eloise has access to a bed, access to a couch. She just fights it with this intensity that, she's gonna, that something bad is going to happen when she goes to sleep or she's missing something. So that's, my, that's parenting right now in a nutshell as of the end of August of 2020. More in a future episode. Takes of all temperatures. Totes next.
Toe number one. Tucker Carlson is in the running for the most reprehensible public figure in America. To me, winning the Browns just behind Trump and Mitch McConnell. I don't have enough negative words to describe my utter disdain and disgust for Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson is a white supremacist masking, masquerading as a propaganda cable TV news host. I loathe the guy with every bone in my body. Can't fucking stand him. You know, I can spend a whole episode detailing the racist and terrible shit he has said over the years. But I'll just look back over the last couple weeks. It started with the way that he sternly will look at the camera. Which is just with this phoniness to him. But... It, it, to him, he thinks he's uh, being authentic and relatable. And he talked about Michelle Obama's speech from her, from her eight-figure estate. Tucker, meanwhile, makes $6 million a year, has a net worth of $30 million. But of course, Michelle's money he attributes to being first lady rather than her having a degree from Princeton and a law degree from Harvard. You know, she embodies the path of capitalism, Tucker, but I guess she isn't a white earner, Tucker. He talks about how Obama, as an African-American president, was elected twice, and that's how Michelle became successful, yada, yada. Meanwhile, Tucker, 44% of Caucasians voted against, voted for Obama, so 66% did not, which is two-thirds of white Americans, okay? So 44% of Caucasians, only it's a segment of the population that voted for him. So no, we aren't going to bow down to this majority electorate. And then on this rant... On this show, he minimizes the problem of unarmed black people being killed by police, talks about Michelle lying. No, Tuck, she didn't lie. He highlights an absolute number of eight and contrasts this to 11 white unarmed people being shot. What he fails to highlight to his largely dimwit audience is that Caucasians are five and a half times the population of African-Americans. So a more commensurate number would be about 42 or 43 murdered. Also, that doesn't include... Ahmaud Arbery murdered by hillbillies while jogging. So, so nice try, Tucker. Then this week, he goes to glorify white supremacist Kyle Rittenhouse, who literally murdered people during protests and doesn't deserve to see the light of day for decades, if at all, in his life. So fuck you, Tucker. My spirituality tells me I should pray for somebody like, like you, but I pray the world is spared from your pussy-ass mug your hateful soliloquies, however the universe could grant it. Tote number two. Oat milk is awesome. Go ahead and knock me for it. All right. A few years ago, Jen and I watched uh, What the Health, a, a documentary on Netflix. And for those not familiar, it outlines not only the benefits of a plant-based diet, but also the dangers of meat and dairy consumption really on any level. Now, as a reaction to that, Jen, I didn't turn 100% vegans, but for the first part of 2019, especially our diet was probably some weeks 80 to 90% plant-based or vegan flexible as Jen coined it. Now, while I've loosened the rigidity of this diet and Jen has as well, I still have held on to the belief that we need to mitigate dairy and meat as much as we personally can. Now, one substitute I made in the last couple of years where possible is oat milk or almond milk instead of whole milk. Now in coffee, almond milk tastes like shit. So I'm a fan of oat milk. And I put it in coffee or espresso drinks. And yes, I prefer espresso. Call me bougie. All right? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I got what was intended to be an oat latte. 
but I'm pretty sure they fucked up and they gave me a whole milk latte. And maybe my calorie concerns coupled with this dairy minimization just got me crazy. I lost my mind over it. I, I pined over going back to this coffee place 50 minutes from, from, our, from our home to correct it. But instead, I drank about a quarter of it and threw it out and just like could, couldn't stop talking about it. Couldn't, couldn't lose the fixation over it. All right, so my take, oat milk is good. No dairy. It's a great lower calorie and fat content. And I don't think you're sacrificing much taste of any. So I think oat milk is fucking awesome. Tote number three. Being hungover has two massive relief points. First bit of food the next day and the first time you go number two. Now, I'm sorry if that grosses you out. I'm sorry, it's just, it's just true. Nothing is better though right after you're hung, when you're hungover the next day than eggs, bacon, a bagel, a stack of pancakes, some orange juice, coffee. After, you know, when, when you're hungover and you're feeling it, that hits the spot. And frankly, the meal after that hits the spot in a unique way as well. Now, I'm sure there's some scientific explanation to it, but it's something else. And then the first time you take a, a dump and you excrete the ma- remaining poison of booze from your body, the relief there is pretty massive too. Sounds gross, but it's true. I won't go into more detail, but I imagine a bunch of you are nodding your head right now. Tote number four. Speaking of drinking, shots are unnecessary after a certain age if you're married. The threshold might differ for different people, but it's somewhere between 30 and 35 in this part of the country in my demographic. Now, in general, it's no secret hangovers get worse and worse as time goes on, and there are a few ages where this is exacerbated. So, so far for me, it was maybe around like 23, then 28 it got worse again, then like 33 or 34. But in general, drinking past three or four drinks once you hit a certain age threshold is massively overrated. It's nice to get a buzz going, especially as a parent with fellow parents, as I detailed at the open, or your spouse, but you are better off downshifting after the clock strikes about 10 or 11. The physical effects alone are terrible the next day, but when you throw taking care of kids into the mix, forget it. Free advice, put down the hard liquor after a certain time and say no to shots. Sports commentary next. Okay, Sports Digest. So um, going to start doing deeper dives in the, as far as the NFL season. Uh, but COVID has been a, just a batshit year for sports. You know, we were without sports for literally four months. Then we have these seasons resume in the NBA, the NHL, or commence like the MLB, and without really any fans present. Now, I myself cannot get into these things the same way when there's no home field advantage in these adjusted NBA playoffs with fans on Zoom screens. And speaking of the NBA and the boycotts after the Jacob Blake death, I obviously support taking a strong stance. You know how I feel about this issue, but I didn't really understand the end game with this. You know, it's not, it's kind of like the kidnapper not making any demands. All right. Yeah. You raise awareness, but what do you actually want? And that's why they're playing again. You know, you're also boycotting a very liberal fan base, which is less effective than using the public platform to say, make visual statements without backlash and getting support and solidarity from other players, other um, league and retired players and whatnot, and, and media and fans. So just my thoughts on the protests around the NBA. Now, football. Football Sunday is less than two weeks away. 
which I really have a hard time getting too excited about, as much as I love the NFL. And that's rooted in all the other uneasiness in this country, in the world, and just the asterisks that are going to be next to any team that does well this year. You know, I also think there's some air out of these stadiums with no crowds or less crowds. I know it's like stadium to stadium, I heard. But um, you know, I, I also just question, is this, is this going to go the whole five or so months that it normally goes without any public health disruption for COVID? It'd be really an interesting year to watch and just see how this all transpires. But um, quickly on Hard Knocks 2020, um, three episodes down so far. I think another two to go. I'll recap the, the last two in my, my last episode. But overall, um, it's always entertaining for me as an NFL junkie. Jen, my wife, watches it with me. It's always we, I always enjoy watching it with her and getting her take on situations. But I understand why they did both LA teams, given it's a year that literally has no preseason games. So you need, you need more than just one featured team. And LA makes the most sense, unless you're doing the Jets and the Giants. But visually, as they flip back and forth between the teams, the Rams and Chargers are virtually the same freaking colors. The Rams have a slightly darker blue, but they... They both have like kind of have like new logos or newer logos than they did, and uh, it's just confusing when you're watching. Like, wait, what team am I watching? Especially if it's not like one of the, 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 the main players and the showcase players that you're used to seeing. Now, as far as coaches, I think both Anthony Lynn and Sean McVay have showed well for a show that often makes coaches look less effective and competent. McVay is who we thought he was: super intense, one-liners, bombshell fiance. Dog, Mansion. Anthony Lynn, I, I think, sometimes gets uh, is maligned sometimes. He's obviously, he looks like a, he's a good coach. He's a relatable coach. He's won a lot in this league in spite of having a very choppy roster and a non-existent fan base. Char, especially with the Chargers moving to L.A. Now, episode two is very boring. One and three were entertaining. But, you know, COVID hard knocks in general is just bizarre. And it just, just as 2020, it's been bizarre for, for everyone. Now, as far as players, I think Justin Herbert's going to be really good. Aaron Donald's just an absolute stud. Joey Bosa, Trump-supporting douche. Melvin Ingram, very likable, deserves a contract. And lastly, you know, I said, it, I said this last year when I heard this information, but why in the fuck is SoFi Stadium where the Chargers and Rams share a dome? It's great that it's clear like Minnesota, and, but like with Minnesota, I get it. There's nice sunshine, but it's freaking freezing most of the year. LA is the best weather in the country. And you don't want an open air stadium? Just stupid stuff. So those are my, uh, my, my thoughts on sports. It will be interesting to see how everything shakes out across the NFL, across the MLB, NHL, NBA, everything else. So. Thanks for listening to the Chris Ham Podcast. Please make sure you are subscribed on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please rate and review me. And finally, please follow me on Twitter, at Chris N. Ham. Your support and feedback are incredibly valuable. Tell your friends, family, colleagues, spread the word. Take it easy, friends.